IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we respond to email sent by you, the IndieCast listener. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. It was his idea to name Joker 2 after a Fall Out Boy album. Ian Cohen. <laughs> Ian, how are you? Yeah, no one in the writing room believed me that Fall Out Boy made a remix album called Make America Psycho again in 2015. <laughs> I thought that would have been a good tagline for a Joker movie, but... Also, like, imagine being shouted down in that writer's room for being too on the nose. I just want to, like, point out that... Fall Out Boy did indeed made a remix album that featured Migos, Black Thought, uh, Wiz Khalifa, and Azalea Banks. Like, I is this Fall Out Boy canon? I've never heard anyone talk about Make America Psycho again. Or maybe I don't know that that is an album I will never listen to. I can guarantee that that uh, that is like red flags galore in that track list. I should mention for those who don't know the the name of Joker Two, which I think. Is going to happen. It's been reported to happen. Yes. It's called Folie et Deux, mm-hmm. which is also the name of Fall Out Boy's 2008 album. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know where that falls in the Fall Out Boy canon. I, I personally am not a Fall Out Boy fan. I don't know where you stand. Yeah, I am like a, th- with them. I'm a thanks for the memories only Fall Out Boy fan. Like, I, I get the feeling sort of similar to like My Chemical Romance um, that if I like this band a lot more, it would be very beneficial to my career as a music writer but like i just i just can't fake it you know with them or panic at the disco or i mean i I am not gonna lie about that era having any sort of meaning to me beyond oh that's when like i went fully indie rock because like i just it, it was just abundantly clear that 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 type of emo held nothing for me some of those early singles are okay yeah they're great like uh sugar we're going down swinging and uh what else? I can't remember. That's song I remember. Liking. Oh, they were awesome. All the all those Fallout Boy songs. Like I, I, I was just like waiting for you to like start saying like My Chemical Romance or like Taking Back Sunday songs and just. Well, it's funny. Cut. I almost said I almost said an All American Reject song because isn't All American Reject Swing Swing? That is them. Isn't that all? I almost said dance, that. Dance Dance. That's but, the one. Dance Dance. That's Fallout mm-hmm. Boy. But you know, didn't Patrick Stump put out a record called Soul Punk? Probably. Isn't that like a... That just sounds awful. Like his <laughs> voice, I cannot stand. No. Pretty grating. Um, how was your vacation, by the way? You were on <laughs> vacation. That's what, We had to bank an episode uh, last week. Our uh, IndieCasties episode was banked. And just a word of warning, we're going to be banking next week's episode because I'm going on vacation. This is like vacation central for both of us. So we're we're going on tape delay. We're we're recording episodes like in two week bunches mm-hmm. this month. But uh, how was your vacation? Was it you're with the college friends? You're having like a, a cathartic experience. <laughs> it's nostalgia. It's digging up old revelations from the past. This is what I'm imagining happened last week. Yeah, I was I was picturing, and I also like went to my childhood home as well. So it was kind of oh dumb. my god. Yeah, I was expecting my life to be like a one week long real estate song where. <laughs> you know, I'm, it's you know, kind of this languid pace, and I'm looking wistfully into the distance, thinking about how you know the passage of time affects memory, and seeing the town I don't recognize, and 
you know, like, it, there was a lot of that, but in reality, it was more like, you know, Jeff Rosenstock's Worry or Read Music Speak Spanish, where you you go back to the record, like, the Plan 9 music that I used to go to on the corner in Charlottesville to buy CDs. That's now, like, an upscale dumpling spot. Like, the used CD store I would go to is now, like, a Thai place, and... Um, yeah, like every single, this ha- this too also happened when I went back to Athens, Georgia. Like, I don't remember an Urban Outfitters being, uh, you know, on, in downtown. Yeah, there's really nowhere in America to go, uh, that, yeah. that, that maintains that, like, innocence of, you know, kind of small town, like, especially the college towns, like, they gotta cater to people who need, like, a Trader Joe's now, who need, like, a Target now, but... The one thing, the one thing that remained the same when I went back to Virginia was the college radio station. I like dropped by. I saw a guy, like a, like an older gentleman with a ponytail on the microphone. It was Sunday morning. He was completely alone like I was when I would do my, my shows. And like 10 minutes of banter for every minute of music. Like college radio never, ever changed. I beg of you. Well, see, there's a college radio station here in Minneapolis called Radio K, which is a long-running station, and it depends on where I am in the city if I can pick it up. Like, it's not a, a city-wide signal. It's pretty it's pretty weak. But um, whenever I tune into it, they're always playing, like, Nirvana songs, or they're playing, uh, like, I heard them play Ramble On once by Led <laughs> Zeppelin. And it's like, is this college radio, or is this, like, 106.7 The Bear? You know, like, this is very classic rock here. So I was a little surprised, because I remember in the 90s, I would visit Minneapolis and listen to Radio K, and they were playing, you know, Neutral Milk Hotel, and things like that, or Circulatory System, you know, like, Elephant Six type records and very much of the indie rock of the time but uh, maybe i'm just tuning into maybe there's like one classic rock person on staff who like i'm just going to play come as you are you know as like that's going to be my subversive act just (laughs) something totally unexpected for like a hip uh college radio station um well yeah you were talking about the innocence of small towns like my hometown the my boyhood record store just closed this year. I, I, and it might still be open. It's like, it's in the process of winding down. So like they hung on for a long time. When you say they're um, winding down, does that mean like, I, I just remember when like circuit city started closing down, you could get like 90% off their back stock. And you know, none of it was like right. stuff I'd ever use, but can you, just, you just imagine like what you could come up with in like a record store's final days. You could probably buy that Fall Out Boy remix album yeah. for, you know, one ninety nine. That's definitely on clearance at this point. The most profound moment I actually had as far as, like, music goes uh, and record stores is when I was in Philadelphia. I was, like, walking down Pashyank and by the Italian market, and I saw this en- enormous outside display of used CDs for three bucks, which is, you know, like, triple of what I would pay in 1996. And the first thing... I saw, like maybe my eyes trained to it, was Sugar's file under Lee, Easy Listening. Still Ooh. there after all these years. That's a cutout bin classic. Yeah. Three bucks. Underrated though. record. Yeah, I think so. That's underrated. I mean, Copper Blue is just unimpeachable. Yes. So then file under Easy Listening. Not as good, but still a quite good record. Uh, so, yeah. Well, maybe I'll stop by. Maybe they have a copy of that. Yeah. And I'll, I'll drive five hours to my hometown, try to pick up a a cheap file under easy listening. Fairweather Johnson, Monster, all the classics. Yeah, you can find those at any half price books for 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 pennies. So I, I wouldn't have to drive 
I could probably find file, file under easy listening to it at uh, the local half price books. Um, we have to get to this story. You sent me this article yesterday, the day before we recorded. Tablet Magazine, which is, is that like a Jewish uh, magazine? It is. I, I believe it's a Jewish, uh, I believe it's a Jewish culture publication. Yeah. Like it's a, okay. it, it, it considers itself a online magazine focused on Jewish news and culture. Okay. They did a story on Ariel Pink this week, and it's a story about, essentially, the story is written by this person who's obviously an Ariel Pink super fan. Uh, and it's talking about how he was canceled. I'm going to put canceled in air quotes here after uh, Ariel Pink was seen. Well, I guess he posted photos of himself, or I guess John Mouse did <laughs> of them at the January 6th rally, not the actual riot. I guess we should distinguish this, that they were at the rally, the Stop the Steal rally. But then they retired to their hotel room to take a nap before it devolved into a riot. So Ariel Pink didn't storm the Capitol, but he was there protesting uh, the uh, the certification of the election because he supposedly feels that it was stolen from Donald Trump. Although, I was thinking about this as I was reading the story. Does Ariel Pink really believe that, or did he go to this rally ironically? Like, I could see him not having any political affiliation at all, just going to this rally because it's like a provocative thing to do. I mean, I mean, he has said that he likes Donald Trump, but I was just, I was like, is Ariel Pink, like, does he, is he intellectual enough to actually like have thought about this on any level? I don't know. But anyway, the article was defending Ariel Pink and I have some thoughts on it, but I was curious, like, what, what did you think? Like, did you read the whole thing? I mean, there, the point where he started to distinguish of like, no, I didn't go to the to the ride. I didn't go to the storming of the Capitol. I just went to the rally. Like that's the point. Well, that is an important distinction. Is, to be fair, it's definitely an important distinction. And although I don't think it absolves him as much as it, he thinks it does, but like right, I don't know. Right. Like I'm just reading this thing, and like, I, and again, there's maybe like ten songs of Ariel Pink's that I like legitimately love. But and it also is disappointing that him and John Mouse got canceled before you know the mainstreaming of the opinion that their music is mostly unlistenable bullshit but i mean reading this art like and also like tablet magazine if i ever get canceled i went to hebrew secondary school until i was 16 i hope you guys got my back the way you have ariel pinks this is an extreme well, you got you you got canceled by uh uh childish gambino fans though i mean so you you've weathered your own cancelization scandals <laughs> would you you know like kid cuddy yes and uh <laughs> Childish Gambino. They tried to can't they they couldn't take you down. No. They tried to. <laughs> um but yeah, I mean I, I was just like my my brain cracks and like egg yolks spilling out of my ears just like reading how sympathetic this article is towards Ariel Pink. And you know what? Like I feel a bit of like I just, I, I will always read these articles if only because I just one is I, I just so interested as like what happens to a human being after you know something like this. You know, it, it, he has a wife and I think a kid as well. Like you gotta like I just really wonder like what that day to day life is like for them. But what I got from this was a very similar vibe to a, a Variety article 
that about Ryan Adams' career reboot where it talks about like how he got like a crisis. That published when you were on vacation. Yes. We missed that I was last week. Very happy to not have to talk about it, but now I kind of have to. Well, it, and we should just say quick that for people who didn't see that, there was this Variety article that was published last week where Ryan Adams wasn't interviewed. They interviewed his PR team essentially, talking about how he performed uh, some shows in New York at the Beacon, and I think he was also in Boston. That were very successful shows, apparently. I, I saw this week that uh, he just announced a tour. Uh, he's coming to Minneapolis, my neck of the woods, this summer. I th- and I think he's playing like the middle of the country. Uh, you know, the heartland of America. Uh, so he's rolling it back. But yeah, there was this, it was very interesting that Ryan Adams himself was not interviewed in this piece. It was just PR people <laughs> talking <laughs> about him. Uh, you know, attempting this comeback. Um what I think is interesting about the Ariel Pink article, and I'll say, like, I read the whole article because I do have a, I guess, a morbid fascination yeah. with artists who are in this situation. I'm curious about their headspace and what, what what was going on. I mean, I think the flaw of all these articles is that they tend to come from a sympathetic place for the artist and not a more impartial place, which I think is the weakness of this particular article. I which I think was written with the presumption that if Ariel Pink wouldn't have had this January 6th controversy, that he would still be as critically lauded as he was in 2010. And I think that's clearly not true. That, you know, certainly the uh, controversy with, with all the Trump stuff certainly accelerated his fall from uh, prestige. But I, I think it's pretty clear if you look at the at the trajectory of his career and also just indie music in general that his style of music and also just his style of persona had already fallen like out of favor i think with a lot of music critics especially like this younger generation of critics i mean like one of the things i thought was interesting about that story and the author didn't really delve into this but it really does expose like how constructed a lot of forms of indie fame are that you know, you can seem like you're famous if you're being written about a lot, and then you seem less famous if you're not being written a lot about. But in terms of like organic popularity, like with Ariel Pink, like I question how much was ever there. You know, because if you want to use Ryan Adams as an example, like he can still play big theaters, even though the media has basically just ignored him now for like the last two or three years he does have an audience that he can draw to maybe an even bigger example like morgan wallen you know like he was you know derided for being caught on tape using an using the n-word and he's persona non grata now with a lot of people in the media but like that guy's playing stadiums you know he still has an audience the fact about cancel culture is that the only people that can cancel you are people who like you. You know, like, like the people in the media, if they already don't like you anyway, if they're now disparaging you even more, I, I question how devastating that is. But if the people who like you still like you or they don't care about what the media is saying, like you can't really be canceled. So I, like with Ariel Pink, I think what that story exposes in a way is that like, this guy never really had a constituency. I think that was real. 
I would, Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think what you're saying is on point and also, you know, having lived in L.A. for like 10 years during like the peak of Ariel Pink Mania, like there is an audience. And I think what this article was really trying to say is that like, look, there is still like an audience for this. And, you know, it, in a similar way, like I'll like talk. But is there, though? Because like, I feel like that would be self-evident, uh, you know, <laughs> like they talk about his record label dropping yeah. him. Which is the most concrete example. If you want to say he's canceled, mm-hmm. like that would be something I would say, okay, that's a concrete example of that. Um, but I also feel like he's dropped by his record label because there's a commercial imperative there where the label is saying, we don't want to be associated with this because we think it's going to hurt our overall brand. And that's why we're dropping him. Whereas again, Morgan Wallen, he hasn't been dropped because they've done the calculation that yeah, he has bad media, but he still has a big audience. So we can withstand this. Or on Broadway, there was just, there's like a new Michael Jackson musical. Uh-huh. You know, Michael Jackson's been accused of way worse things than either Ariel Pink or Morgan Wallen or, or anyone else. But someone decided, okay, we can put millions of dollars into this production because even though there's a controversy around him. There's still an audience. And I'm not saying like there are people who like Ariel Pink, but I, I just question again, even if you took away this controversy, like would he still be a big star? Like, no, well, he wouldn't. Be. I don't know if he was ever a big star, but I think, you know, he would be able to, you know, play clubs, like, you know, do shows, like have his albums talked about. I mean, he's still got like 750,000 monthly listeners on Spotify. Uh, I mean, look, there's somebody, there's somebody out there listening to the, I mean, and it, it reminds me of like a similar circumstance where I saw someone, uh, you know, a friend of mine, he was like clearly listening to brand news Deja Entendu on his uh, iPod, uh, or no iPhone because iPods don't exist. And like this guy had no idea of like what happened to them in the past 10 years. So I, I think that maybe, I don't know, out Maybe people don't know or they don't care. Like, I think, you know, people such as ourselves who are in the trend hashing business maybe tend to forget how little the average person pays attention to music. Like, I could imagine a very substantial amount of people who, like, more or less stopped interacting with indie rock in, like, 2014. Uh, and, you know, that that maybe that's the audience now. Yeah, I'm, or it could be... 13-year-old kids mm. who are starting to get into this kind of music and, and they're listening to Ariel Pink. And it'll be interesting to see. Maybe in 5, 10 years, he becomes like the R. Stevie Moore figure, you know? <laughs> yeah. To talk, to make an Ariel Pink reference, like he becomes like this kind of middle-aged cult hero that's rediscovered by a new generation. I mean, I, I could see that happening with him. I am Maybe that's so his impressed path forward. by that reference. Like you really brought oh. it back full circle. Like, that is so well, artful right there. Well, again, we are professional indie cast uh, or indie rock podcast hosts, so we need to be prepared to bring out references. Um, well, let's go to the like a, the polar opposite of Ariel <laughs> Pink in terms of, like, people having good feelings about them. Uh, I feel like we should talk quick about the new Barty Strange record that is dropping today. It's called Farm to Table. Um, I believe you have a profile that about Bartiz that you wrote for the ringer is that already up yeah it went up uh this morning um 
uh, the morning that we're recording. The morning that we're recording, and boy, like there, there's like nothing like the feeling of like waking up. Like that's another thing that's the biggest difference between the East Coast and the West Coast. Like when I wake up in the morning here, the discourse has already begun. Like I would wake up at seven o'clock in the morning in Philadelphia, nothing popping on Twitter, but. Yeah, there's always that like pit of the stomach feeling when you have like this huge piece that's going up and like you're not sure. You're just like, uh, how are people going to react to this? But, you know, I feel pretty confident because like as you were saying, like Barty Strange is perhaps like I can't remember the last indie artist who was so consensusly beloved and people want to root for the guy. I also feel like I'm like the 14,000th person to write a Barty Strange profile. Like, that was, like, the joke that we kind of met upon where it's, like, I cannot believe that we haven't, you know, done an interview yet. Um, yeah, that is strange that, you because I, I, I talked to him a few years ago. I'm going to be writing something that's going to be coming out in a while. We should say quick, for those who don't know, Barty Strange, he's a 33-year-old singer-songwriter. Uh, he put out his first album a few years ago. It was called Live Forever, and that was in conjunction with an EP of covers of songs by The National. Uh, that he put out a few months before that is called uh, "Say Goodbye to Pretty Boy." Say goodbye to Pretty Boy, and um, he works in a lot of different styles. I think he kind of initially came out of the emo scene, but there's also like a lot of uh, sort of R and B in his music, a lot of like kind of traditional indie rock in his music. Um, and the new album that he has out today, it's called "Farm to Table." It's his second full length record. I think it's like a quite good record. I I, I like this record a lot. I think. Um, it's definitely, I think, an improvement over the first record, which I also thought was really great. I'm really impressed by the production of this record. I, I, you know, one of the things that people always talk about with Barty Strange is his ability to go to different genres and kind of combine them in a very organic way that feels uh, like it's all of one piece. Uh, it somehow flows together really well. And I think on this record in particular, he, he's really refined that mix of different styles. It's a very silky sounding record. Uh, it's, a, it's a great headphones album. Um, I assume you like the record since you wrote this long profile of Barty's. I'm, I'm just curious like what you think of the, of the yeah, record. Yeah, I think that Live Forever was... I mean, an album that people really were open to receiving in 2020, um, like a few months before it had come out, like I was wondering if it would just be kind of marooned in this emo DIY hardcore sort of scene, like maybe like a band like Foxing in a way and not cross over to indie rock proper. But um, yeah, I like that album a lot. Um, And this album, it's, I like it a lot too. I still think he has like his, total masterpiece like ahead of him um you know because this one it's like it's definitely a leveling up in a way it doesn't quite feel as eager to prove itself in the way that live forever did um and also it's like still kind of streamlined it still feels like a very kind of intimate uh record it's like 10 songs it goes more acoustic than the previous one it gets into you know his background as like a soul and country singer um, and you know, like more than anything, it's like an average, it's like an advertisement for Barty Strange, the individual, like someone who just has like a lot of interesting things to say about uh, a lot of topics that don't really get covered much in indie rock. And I think one of the, one of the, one of the most poignant parts of the interview I did was he talked about how the national is his favorite band. And one of the reasons is because Matt Berninger was 36 years old when he made Boxer, um, and Barty Strange had like an entire career in like political consulting 
prior to being in he was in the Obama yeah, he administration. Was at the FCC. And I think that in a way makes him, if not necessarily more relatable, because I mean this guy's excelled in many fields. Um, it just makes him seem like a more well rounded person um who, you know, has life experience to bring into this music. I think the one <laughs> but the the one the one thing that really uh you know kind of made me chuckle in a way that I shouldn't laugh is that he's got a song on this new record called Hold the Line, which was inspired by George Floyd um, and his daughter. And um, when I saw him perform that song live for Car Seat, like he was opening for Car Seat Headrest when I interviewed him. And, you know, you're seeing him up on stage pouring his soul out for this like very wrenching, uh, politically uh, astute song. And to my immediate left, there's like a group of college kids who were dressed in killer whale onesies like just watching him play this song. It's a little bit of, it's a bit, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance in seeing, you know, Barty Strange do these songs for like, you know, what seems like every single indie A-lister under the sun. You know, I can't wait till he does his headline tours. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know if your piece explores this, but I mean, I don't think we've mentioned that like Barty Strange, he's a black musician and he's often playing for mostly white audiences. And that's like an example that you're mentioning right there. Uh, I mean, I feel like he's talked about this, but that must be, there must be lots of instances of cognitive dissonance, like when you have that type of dynamic going on at a show. Yeah, especially if you're playing for car seat headrest. <laughs> right. Yeah, sh- uh, who's a furry, by the way? I, we, we didn't no. get to that, because we we're, we're already like way over on our banter here. We were going to talk about Will Toledo uh, confirming that he's a furry. But uh, we ran out of time. I mean, we have, we just have so much to talk about. Maybe we'll get to that in our banked episode. We'll do a IndieCast investigation into because I mean that was sort of common knowledge, right? With Will yeah, it, it was an open secret. It, it's like not even an open secret because it wasn't really a secret. But you know, it's just I don't. I think this one was him just kind of opening up about it and like just saying like, hey. Here's me. This is what I'm dealing with. And you know, good good for Will Toledo. Good, but good for the, him. Good for him. Good for the furry community to yeah. have a high-profile uh, person uh, talking about that. But yeah, we we're way over in our banter here. We have to get to our mailbag here, we do. which which is also the meat of our <laughs> episode. And uh, thank you all for writing in. We had a ton of letters because you know we had that week where we didn't do an episode, so we're trying to empty out the mailbag here a little bit. We also had like a lot of good uh, uh, letters too, like things that. We'll give things that are giving us material to talk about on the show during a time of the year where things are slowing down. So it's nice to have some content here. Uh, do you want to read our first? I do indeed. So uh, this is um, this is someone writing in from Richmond, Virginia, uh, a part of the country I hold very dear. Um, and he has a question about Joyce. We don't Van- have the name here. Do I? Yeah, I, we don't have the name. Keep talking. I'm going to look up the name. Okay. Uh, so Joyce Manor posted what looks like an alternate track list for their new record over the weekend. And while it's interesting to think about, it's somewhat unsettling to see an album track list completely different from what I've grown to know and love. Like the one, like the one time that I posted an alternate version and never hung over again. Uh, this is referring to Barry Johnson from Joyce Manor sharing the original idea for the track list of never hung over again, which was, he admit just like absolutely batshit insane. So, with this in mind, our letter writer has two questions. His name is Andrew, by the way. I just found Andrew. it. Andrew. Yes. Right. Andrew from Richmond. Is there an album you think has a perfect track list? Not just your favorite record, but one where the songs flow from one another perfectly, and you can't really imagine them working in another way. 
Kid A comes to mind for him. Uh, everything on this album seems to be David Caruso. Glasses removed in its right place. Ah. Uh. Yes. And is there one album that you think you could drastically improve by changing up the track list? Thanks. Love the show. Andrew, Richmond, VA. Um, and thank you for the Kid A shout out there, by the way. There's a book about that called This Isn't Happening that I wrote a couple years ago. Uh, obligatory plug there. Thank you. Please take a drink out in IndieCast Nation. Um, yeah, I was thinking about this one. Didn't we have a conversation on the show about Hot Fuss, the killers being a track list that needs to be redone? Was that on this show or was that on Celebration Rock? I feel like we've talked about that before. Or am I completely hallucinating this? You're probably not. I mean, we, we've talked about the killers so much uh, on this <laughs> one and also just like super nerdy track listing stuff. We've probably answered that question as far as like, first half, second half, like which albums fall off. But I, you know, I do feel like we've had this conversation and maybe it was on Twitter about like how, if you took the second half of that record, which is like notoriously not the singles and disperse them throughout the record, maybe like hot fuss would be seen as like a classic album as opposed to just like a really popular album. Uh, it's a classic album. I'm okay. giving it classic album status. I mean, you could say the same thing about the Joshua tree too. I think th- that's similar. Although I love, side two of the joshua tree but that's another album where you have like three number one hits all in a row at the at the start of the record and then it's deep cuts after that but i don't know i was thinking you know he uh, andrew mentioned kid a i think that's a great example of an album that flows really well from beginning to end i'm a big fan of albums that break the songs into two sides where you have the rocking side and you have the quiet side and I think the ultimate example of that for me is Tattoo You, the Rolling Stones uh, record. Uh, you know, starts off with st- Start Me Up, and then you have like Waiting on a Friend on the second side. I love that structure. David Bowie did something similar with Low, where you have the songs on side one, and then side two are all these uh, instrumental pieces. Uh, again, I love that dichotomy. I think The Strokes did that on The New Abnormal. I I'll mentioned to Tattoo You. you. <laughs> trust me on that. I, I mentioned Tattoo You in the review of that record, and it's a similar thing like where side one has more rockers and then side two is more kind of downbeat songs. I really like that structure. It's almost like a more conceptual type, type playlist versus, again, looking at a playlist as a whole. Uh, I don't know how you feel about that. Like, wh- wh- What do you think of as really well-sequenced records? Yeah, I would say that this one, like, I have to bring up Bleed American because of course. it seems like it always <laughs> comes up in the emo slash pop punk slash pop rock realm of, like, this is how you construct a pop rock record, which, you know, the first song, the side one, track one, they just, like, get right into it. It's the, you know, the hardest rocking song. This decelerates a little bit to the single, then goes back up again, and then the sixth song Six out of 11 or five out of 10. That's where you got to do the acoustic ballad. Then you got to come back, slightly come back up, maybe do like a bigger ballad track eight, track nine. You get like the penultimate banger and then the six minute ballad. Like it is, that's how you construct it. I think, uh, I just have to say quick that you mentioned bleed American and I plugged my book. So I think our audience (laughs) is already drunk right now. (laughs) Yeah. You know, if you're taking a drink while listening to this, you're already wasted you know, halfway into this episode. 
One of my um, one of my uh, favorite albums of uh, 2022 is Anxious Little Green House, which um, does the Bleed American style in a ten song uh, ten song track list. But yeah, every time like Taking Back Sunday, also Where You Want to Be, another great example of the Bleed American format. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm as much about the conceptual structuring as you are. But um, as far as like albums that I think would be improved by resequencing, I don't. Maybe I just have like so I guess more respect for artists like who intentionally sequence that I don't want to change things to the point where where I've like heard albums that were incorrectly sequenced um, in a leak or whatever. I still like have trouble reframing uh, once the correct track list comes out. Like I think of the return to Cookie Mountain that began with Wolf Wolf Like Me um, or Passion Pits Manners where like two of the songs had their titles switched. It's still a little jarring. Um, also, the Modest Mouse uh, album, We Were Dead Before the Ship Even Sank, the one in 2007, that album leaked in reverse. And so, like, Invisible was the first song. It's like, oh, yeah, this this sounds like it makes sense. Yeah, I just had, I can't think of too many albums that where I'd, like, intentionally resequence it, you know? Yeah, I'm I, I'm, I'm on board with that. I, and again, even, like, with, with Hot Fuss, I like the second side of that record. I, I don't mind that one side is loaded with all the singles and then side two is more of like the deep cuts or, you know, the, the, the sort of dark horse favorites. Um, I like that. Again, I, I maybe it goes back to that idea of like thinking of an album having two sides and having a different personality to each side. I always think that's pretty cool, um, which is admittedly a very old fashioned way of thinking about albums. You know, we now, I think, maybe people are more inclined to think of them almost like a playlist where it is more about having a more consistent experience throughout uh, rather than that sort of, you know, sort of duality of two sides of a record. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I'm with you. I can defend the artist's intent. I always think that's a good thing to do. Well, let's get to our second letter here. This comes from Enrico in Toronto. Thank you for writing in. Enrico writes, Hey, Steven and Ian, a.k.a. the Cisco and Ebert of indie rock criticism. Holy, holy mackerel. Who's Cisco and who's Ebert? Oh, uh, I, I mean, Ebert was the guy who, like, famously got sober, but, like, he's, you know, also passed away. So I don't know if I want to go with that. Well, they're that. both passed away. So, oh, really? Yeah, Cisco okay. died first. He okay. died in the late 90s, and then uh, Ebert died about 15 years later. Huh. Um, oh, right. Ebert and Roper. I remember that Drake lyric. But, look, I'm I'll gonna take say this. I think I'm probably fatter than you, so I'll take Ebert. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it, about that. It's better than Stockton and Malone, which you've also been called. Yeah, that's true. Uh, love the podcast. I want to thank you for the weekly hit of nostalgia. From mentions of Ugly Kid Joe, Steve Miller Band's greatest hits, The Flaming Lips playing The Peach Pit, After Dark, Nano 2 and more. Well, thank you. My question for both of you is inspired by the latest mid-year review pod. Steven was saying that 2022 might be the best year for music in a while. So my question is, what do you guys think is the greatest year for music? As part of Generation X, I'm partial to 1997, but I'm interested to hear what you guys think. Thanks, Enrico. So the greatest year for music. This is a barroom conversation Absolutely. starter right here. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like 1997. Like, I mean, that was the year that Tub Thumping and Semi Charm Life came out. I big mean, big uh, well, British rock year. That was OK Computer. And The Verve, uh, Urban now. Hymns, Be Here Now, Supergrass, In It For The Money. Uh, <laughs> I, I think the self-titled Blur record might have been yes. that year. 
Yeah. So also, Freak Nasty did the dip that year. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it, definitely a good year. Um, but yeah, what, do you have a do you have an answer for this? Like, what do you think is the greatest year for music? So I took maybe I just like misread the question, but like he said, the last greatest year for music. So um, this kind of narrows it down. Oh a bit. yeah, the last greatest year. Yes, because okay. I mean, yeah, I, I that's an interesting phrasing. So he's saying like the oh he's he's saying like the most recent year to now. Yes. Okay. Yes, which you know I I love that because otherwise you know we get into like you know Homer Simpson music was perfected in 1974 <laughs> type talk. So you um, you read it properly. I think I read it improperly, but I, I but you read it properly. So anyway, yeah. So I mean. Questions like these are all like, you know, he's like Enrico said, he's Gen X, partial 1997. And I think any sort of determination about the last great year of music is inherently wrapped up in, you know, some kind of nostalgia or formative experience. Like, I think for some people, 2022 may indeed be like their 1997. It's like, uh, but I just won't be able to feel it because I'm like 42 years old going to work every single day, married, a homeowner. It's all these things. But I think we could say like objectively 2016 was a year which I have a lot of trouble imagining us recreating because there was so much finality baked into that year because you got like a Leonard Cohen album and a David Bowie album, both which were considered kind of masterpieces. And then they died several months later. Prince died that year. It was the last uh, Frank Ocean album, the last Tribe Called Quest album, the last Radiohead album, the last Beyonce album, at least until now. Yeah, or all of these are until now. Like, it, yeah, there was, there was a Beyonce record that year, although there was a new Beyonce record just announced this week. But her yeah. most, her, her last kind of full fledged solo record was 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would imagine this is, it's definitely going to be the last Tribe Called Quest album. Uh, Frank Ocean, you know, Radiohead, Rihanna, her last album, which. The, you know, that album's reputation has just grown immensely since it came out. Um, the last good Kanye album, the last Hotel Year album, and, you know, there was also the best 1975 album, Pup, Misky, Jeff Rosen. I mean, the list goes on and on and on about, like... 22 A Million, the Bonnie yes. Bear record, which is well, his last record, but that, for <laughs> many people, is his best record. And I think no matter what genre you're into, it just seems like there were so many heavy hitters, like no, like whether you were rap, pop, emo, punk, whatever. And um, also, yeah, a little something happened in November of 2016, which kind of adds to an end of an era sort of feel. Um, you know, F- I remember having conversations in 2016 about like how 2012 felt like a more, I don't know, positive a generous time on the internet but you know after trump got elected like the conversation around like what around music and what music was supposed to do and how it should be talked about like it completely changed like for better for worse who's to say but you know everything about 2016 sets up as being like that is an end of an era right there like we are looking before and after yeah it's pretty wild to think yeah, we had a new David Bowie record that year. You know, just amazing. <laughs> and it, it, it wasn't that long ago, but that that seems like a lifetime ago. And like the first Big Thief record came out oh, yeah. that year. And uh, I was just looking at my list here. Yeah, and I think you mentioned Mitski, but that was her, I think, best record came out that year. Car Seat Headrest. Yeah. Car Seat Headrest at his peak. Uh, yeah, really fascinating year. Yeah, I, I misread this question. Because uh, I, I thought it meant, like, what was the greatest year for music? And I was thinking, 
you know, if I was thinking like all time, I'd probably say something like 1967 or 1971. I mean, 67, you have like the first records by Jimi Hendrix and the Velvet Underground and the Doors and like all this stuff. And you have Sgt. Pepper and yada, yada, yada. I was thinking of like the, my, my, the greatest year of my lifetime. And I came up with 1994. I just mm. think, especially if you like alternative rock, that's such a great year. You know, everything from the first Weezer record to uh, the Downward Spiral to, you know, Nirvana, uh, the Unplugged record. Uh, the Green Day Dookie came out that year. I mean, just like a Diary. Laundry, uh, diary <laughs> I, I got to give a year. shout out to Diary. <laughs> just a, a B-1000 by Guided by Voices came out that year. Just like a laundry list of classic records. Um, I, I think I'm with you that 2016... It's certainly like the last like really momentous year. I mean, just all of those records that you were listing, they really do feel like landmarks in uh, in very crucial ways. You know, go, you know, from Blonde to Life of Pablo to you know the Beyonce record, and on and on and on. I'll say, and I think we did an episode on this year that maybe the best year before that is two thousand five. Didn't we do an episode in 2005? That like, was a Celebration on? Rock episode. Was it? Okay. That, I, that, you, you are correct, and it was Celebration Rock. Okay. Like, that was a really great year for, again, just like aughts era indie. You know, uh, you know Spoon, Gimme Fiction, The Hold Steady, Separation Sunday, uh, the Slater-Kinney record, The Woods came out that year. I'm trying to think of, like, what else uh, – from 2005. I mean, we have Alligator, we have Illinois, right. we have Late Registration, we have the self-titled Broken Social Scene, we have uh, Silent Alarm. Uh, I think Worlds Apart came out that year. An- another <laughs> another IndieCast drink. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, that's a great year. But yeah, 2016, I, I, that feels like the right answer. Uh, and we'll see if 2022 stacks up. I think it does so far. Really strong year. Although, yeah, we won't have a new David Bowie or Lo- Leonard Cohen record unless there's something in the vaults uh, that hasn't been released. Uh, let's get to, I think this is going to be our final question for this episode or final letter. Uh, this comes from, uh, let's see, Heidi and, man, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this. Take another drink. Uh, Callie okay. Spell Montana. Callie Spell Montana. Heidi. Hi, Stephen and Ian. I recently stumbled on a British podcast in which the host asks famous people to create their dream festival lineup. It's called The Lineup with Sean Kevany, but you're not obligated to name that since it's competition on the air. I did it. You know, we're, we're, we're friendly to other yeah. people. Honor amongst podcasters. <laughs> exactly. The guests are asked to choose five acts, living or dead, for a one-day dream music festival. Uh, the morning performer should be mellow, ease into the music, followed by two get-into-the-spirit-type acts. The penultimate act is ideally playing as the sun sets, and then there's your ultimate late-night headliner. If you were invited on this podcast, what would you choose as your lineup? I like the concept because the musicians dearest to our hearts aren't necessarily festival-worthy, so that makes it more than just a name-your-favorite-band's exercise. I actually like this idea. This is a very compelling uh, setup here. Uh, I've never heard this podcast, but I, I, I like the concept of it. Mm-hmm. I don't, do you, do you have like a festival lineup in <laughs> mind that you would have like following these parameters? Uh, I'm so never going to get invited onto the lineup with Sean Kevany um, because, you know, I'm like immediately thinking contrarian arguments here. Like 
the previous letter talked about the last great year, which narrowed it down. But like, this is asking us like dead or alive throughout the annals of history. So it's like, I mean, does this mean like I have like the opportunity to get like Beethoven up in there? Like, or, you know, maybe Presumably. Like the, 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 the first people in like the Paleozoic era who like, you know, hit a rock with a stick and like made drum music uh, or, you know, Robert Johnson. <laughs> like, you know, Oh yeah. <laughs> Robert Johnson, his fees would probably not be that high either. You could, yeah. get, you could get Robert Johnson and for, you know, a song i think for this yeah and also it's like you know most people i would imagine would say like hey what if we got the beatles um but like is it the beatles who stopped touring like are is it a alternative reality beatles where like john lennon lived um but yeah, i think the idea is that you could be very specific about yes. who it is so yeah like you said if you're naming like a, a famous band you could say the 1964 beatles you know, you, you can be that. So, yeah, there are, you know, your options are almost limitless here. Yeah. And, you know, I'm just like overwhelmed with like options. So, I mean, uh, the, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is that mellow ease into the morning music. Like I am not a mellow ease into the day guy. Like I was listening yesterday to the new Candy album at 730. But, um, yeah, I, I would say. And again, this is like really stretching the limits of believability um, would be, I would want to see Talk Talk. Um, I, and again, I know they didn't, I don't think they performed Laughing Stock or Spirit of Eden live ever. So, mm. uh, you know, just something to see what it would be like. Maybe they would just kind of go off in very interesting, strange directions. But, you know, I, I, I'm going to go with that just for, like, my own selfish purposes. And even though, like, I'm, like, low-key thinking, no, we're going to start out with Turnstile. Um, that would be the first part. And also, you know, with getting to the spirit bands, I'm thinking of, like, you know, Sly and Family Stone or, like, My Morning Jacket, Circa Okanoko's, like, the peak of their powers. But also... You know what? This is my festival. I want like waves at Primavera and like Salem at the Fader Fort. I so you want, want like, like you want like train wrecks? Yes, I want everyone to have like the worst and most memorable <laughs> time here. Like I, 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 I've never been to Primavera. I want to see what waves was like. I want to recreate those days. And I also want like Ween to play for like five straight hours at the end of the night. So that'd be good. I think the spirit of this question is just so incompatible with my personality that like I, I, I I'm taking the question seriously, but like also I just can't help myself. Well, see, I I thought about this question a lot, and I I had you know my original thought was that I'm just gonna stack this with artists or bands that I would have loved to have seen, but I can't because. They're, they either don't exist anymore or, like, that version of the band no longer exists. So, initially, I was thinking, like, oh, I, I want, like, 1973 Stevie Wonder to be, like, during the day. Like, that'd be great dance music during the day. And then I want to I have, like, Radiohead do, like, their Bonnaroo set from 2006, you know, before In Rainbows came out. And, uh, you know, when all the songs were, no one knew what those songs were, and they all sounded amazing. And then, at night, I want to hear, like, the 1973 Grateful Dead do Dark Star. Uh, for you know, forty-five minutes, like that'd be amazing. And then I was looking at my lineup, and I realized, like, okay, this is like a, a you know, it's just like a bunch of three-course meals on this lineup. It's like it's too much. Like I'd want to see one of these bands by themselves, but it's like if I saw them back to back, like if I saw Stevie Wonder play uh, like a five o'clock set or a seven o'clock set, 
I'm done after that. Like, I'm exhausted. I don't want to hear any more music. So I was like, this is too much. It's too meaty. So then I reconceptualized it. And I was thinking about how we often talk about how our favorite festivals are like the local regional festivals. Because it's packed with people that you would never think to go see. But if you're at a festival and you're having a beer and this person is suddenly on stage, it would be like a lot of fun. So I was thinking, okay, I should program that kind of festival. So... As my mellow mood setter, I have the Bodines. Okay, finish whatever bottle of whatever you have. <laughs> like that is that, that is that is like peak indie cast. <laughs> I have the Bodines because they're the ultimate Wisconsin festival band. You know, they played every county festival known to man. So they're my first band. My second band, Huey Lewis in the News, because if I'm at a festival and I've uh, it's three o'clock and I'm like, should I start drinking yet? And then a, just a pure 80s nostalgia act comes on stage. I'm like, yes, I I want to have a beer right now. I didn't know I needed Huey Lewis in the news, but like now they're on stage. It's great. The next act, I have DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince wow. coming out. Will Smith comeback, the Redemption Tour. Because I felt like in this slot, I wanted like some nostalgia rap act to come out. And originally I was thinking Coolio would be in the slot. <laughs> You know, Coolio comes out, does Fantastic Voyage, One, Two, Three, Four, Gangsta's Paradise, and then he's kind of running out of songs for me after that. And I thought, well, do I have to bring in CeeLo, too? Like, do a CeeLo? Like, do I wish I was a little bit taller? Things that's like that. CeeLo. CeeLo is the guy who's, like, from Goody Mob. Who's oh, sort that's of right. Kind of, who's sort of kind of canceled. Right, right, right. See, so, yeah, the, uh, <laughs> the Gnarls Barkley is CeeLo. Yes. That's CeeLo. Sorry. Shout out to uh, CeeLo and Skilo. Um, But then I was like, no, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, they could play a great 45-minute set. Will Smith, Redemption Tour. So he's on my festival lineup. The Sunset, Bill, and by this point I've had maybe two or three beers. I'm getting a little warmed up. I'm buzzed. Def Leppard comes out and plays Hysteria. Yes. In its entirety at Sunset. And I'm, I'm, I, it's great. I'm singing along to every song. Then as the headliner, I have, and this is the only sort of, like, these are all, like, modern day, too. Like, I'm not going to put them in any eras. Uh, I want the old versions of all these bands. The headliner I'm going to do a specific era for. I'm going to say mid-80s Phil Collins comes out. Just does a, a, maybe some members of Genesis are there, too. So it's, like, mulleted Phil Collins with, you know, wearing the suit coat with the sleeves pushed up. You know, just classic Phil Collins doing like a mid-80s set. But then, and this is where it gets a little funky, I'm going to have the 90s Bone Thugs and Harmony come out because <laughs> didn't they, they sampled Take Me yes, Home. Yes, they did. So they're going to do like a Take Me Home sort of like mashup with Bone Thugs and Harmony. That's going to be like the grand finale of the show. And I'm like, again, this is, it's not a bunch of three-course meals like my original lineup was. This is all small plates, but it's all music that I... Like, this would be, like, the ultimate, like, if I was at the Beale Street Festival in Memphis. Like, this would be the ultimate lineup for that. So, I think that's where I'm at with music festivals right now. What I love about this festival, uh, more so than, like, my ideas or, like, the ones about, like, getting, like, for a lease, you know, in 2020, <laughs> is that, you know, okay, perhaps, like, Phil Collins, I think he's not in great health these days. But Right, like, exactly. This is all kind of, sort of doable. Right, like, exactly. Yeah, like, or if, if, like, you were to somehow, like, 
smashed together Beale Street and like, you know, whatever that festival is in like Delaware and Cabo uh, in San Diego, uh, you could kind of sort of cobble this together. Like this could happen. And I would be so stoked for it. And secondly, like, hey, we would get to do an Indie Rock field, uh, Indie Cast field trip. Yeah, that'd be good. You know, I was also thinking too, you know, about how like in the 60s they would do these radio festivals like where bands would play for 10 minutes they would just play their hits and they'd be off. So you'd have a bill where it'd be like the Who and the Supremes and, you know, four or five other bands and they would just play for 10 minutes like five times a day. And maybe you could do something like that with, uh, you know, sort of aughts era indie bands that had like one hit, like you have the Rapture come out and they do House of Jealous Lovers. <laughs> and then you have, uh, you know, uh, Block Party, they're going to do Helicopter and you know, maybe some other songs. And you could have that like as the headliner where it's just, it's like a mega mix of all these, pl- they come out for one song or two songs and then they're off. Like, I, I mean, that's getting really granular with this scenario, but something like that could be, since we're in the realm of pure fantasy here, you know, if you could make that happen, I think that'd I mean, be pretty amazing. You're, you're sort of kind of talking about that just like Heaven Festival as well. But which, it'd be like that, like on speed, because oh, yeah. they're not doing a whole set. They're doing like one song. Like So you play your one song and then you're off. And then like the next band comes on and you're doing like your one or two songs that people want to hear. And just, MG, MGMT like will refuse to play kids <laughs> like or electric feel. Like that would be, that's what I want to see. Right. Yeah, exactly. It wouldn't be respecting... Because like a band like MGMT, obviously people who like that band, they like Congratulations, they like other albums that they've done, but we're just going for the pure middle-of-the-road people that only know the hits. So it's like, we're disrespecting you, we're going to make you just play your one or two songs. Uh, like in just a mega mix here. And maybe there's like 15 bands like in one headlining set. Yeah, because each band just gets one song. You know, that would be amazing. But that would be like a really long episode probably of that podcast. <laughs> uh, so maybe that wouldn't work. But I don't know. I, if you Again, if you want to get really granular with this, I think you could do something like that. Like, you'd have Vampire Weekend on, but they only do A-Punk. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, we're going to ignore the rest. You know, yeah. we're, we're going to treat them like a one-hit wonder, even though they're not. But Yeah, that's like kind funny. of, like, I imagine, like, Elon Musk's next thing. It's like, how much, <laughs> how much can I pay vampire weekend or like phoenix or you know any band of that ill or like tame impala to play just uh you know uh what would be their big tame impala's biggest song either way like i think they have actual hits now but like what would it take the less i know the better yes Uh, although if you really want to uh, annoy Kevin Parker, you'd make him play Elephant. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, I dropped off with you after Lonerism. I just want, I'm, I'm going to pay you $10 million just to play Elephant. Yeah, that, that itself could be an entire episode. Like, what kind of money could, would we pay for each artist, like, to, for Radiohead to play Creep, for, um, <laughs> yeah, for, for Vampire Weekend to play A-Punk, for MGMT to play Kids, like, for Flaming Lips to play, we, she don't use jelly. Oh my god! <laughs> right. This is so much of a better festival than the one I came up with. Yeah, exactly. I think because it, money's no object here either. Apparently, like you just have a bottomless well of money to pay people. 
Because, I mean, you see this online sometimes. They're like, you know, make your own festival lineup, but they'll have like a dollar sign, like with each subgroup of artists. So that limits it to some degree. But like, yeah, there's no limit here. So you could just be like, yeah, I'm going to pay, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to pay Radiohead $20 million to play Creep. Yeah. Uh, if, if, if the billionaire class is listening to IndieCast, and I know there's got to be at least one, you know, that let's, let, let's make magic happen here. <laughs> Uh, well, I think that about does it for this episode. We're going to skip recommendation corner this week, but we'll head it up next week, uh, which we're recording tomorrow because it's a banked episode. So again, we have to worry about discourse happening when we're not around, I, but we'll probably be okay. I mean, we missed some things yes. when you were gone, but some of those things were like fun to miss. Like it was, it was actually advantageous that, that we weren't around. So hopefully that'll happen uh in our next week's episode as well uh thank you all for listening we'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week and if you're looking for more music recommendations sign up for the indie mixtape newsletter you can go to uprocks.com backslash indie and i recommend five albums per week and we'll send it directly to your email box (laughs) 